Good morning, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are almost to the end of a series on kings that I think we've been in for the last, I don't know, six years, that's what it feels like. Uh, but we have like one or two messages left, and so really excited. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20. And uh, as you turn there, um, my kids and I were sitting outside this week, and I had this really um, uh, difficult time trying to figure out what to do. So my kids were like, let's go swing in the tire swing, let's go build something. And I'm like, I have an idea, let's build a rocket ship. Now, I don't know why I said it, but like as soon as I said it, they were all like, yeah, that's amazing. And so I'm thinking, I have no idea how to build a rocket ship. But I'm like, I can do this, like this is going to be awesome, it's going to be amazing. And as soon as I got and I looked at the wood, I'm thinking, how do you build a rocket ship? So we went on Google and I looked at all of these intricate, beautiful rocket ships and I'm like, there's no way. I mean, I've got some wood and a miter saw, okay? And uh, so I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to figure this thing out. And an hour later, this is what came out. (laughs) The whole time, my kids are like, can we be done? Can I go play in my bedroom? Can we leave? And I'm like, not yet. I need you to, to hold this. Not yet. Not yet. I made them sit with me for an hour. And here's what I wanted to do. Like, secretly in my heart, I wanted Brianne to get home. And I wanted to say, hey, baby, look how awesome I am. Like, your husband can build, right? And an hour into it, I just looked at it, and then my daughter says, that doesn't look like a rocket ship. And I'm like, thank you, honey. Like, I'm well aware that this doesn't look like a rocket ship. You can go in your bedroom right now and play. I'm not speaking to anybody. And Brianne pulls in as I'm putting stuff away, and she's like, so what's that? And I'm like, a rocket ship. Like, there's this little piece of me, though, that, like, I wanted so, I don't know why. I mean, I wanted so badly for Brie to look at me and be like, you're awesome at working with your hands and building stuff. You're so manly, Michael. And I'm just thinking to myself, I, I hate building stuff with my hands. I hate it. I want to build ideas and sermons and music and songs and cultures and teams. Like, that's what I want to build, right? That's how my brain thinks. But you put something like this in my hands, and I'm looking at Wally, who, I mean, I'm amazed at what Wally can build out of wood. It's an unbelievable feat that this guy has. And I'm thinking, I don't know how you do this. And so then um, I have a little problem at my house. A friend comes by, and he looks at me, and he says, you know, um, I have a really, really hard time like memorizing tons and tons of scripture and all this stuff. And he said, but if you give me something to fix, I can fix anything. And I looked at him and I said, I can't, I I hate fixing stuff. Like, and he looks at me and he says, it's amazing how differently God makes us. He makes some people to be able to fix anything. Like uh, Scott Dick and Dan Beach, two guys in our church, you could literally give them a trailer and they could fit hundreds of items perfectly in this trailer. Like what I would do is I would just start shoving them all in, right? And then when I open it up, they would all trickle out. I have zero spatial capacity. Like the ability to see a bunch of stuff and to make it fit into a box Zero. Most marriages, actually, there's a husband or a wife who has spatial capacity, and then the other one who doesn't have any. Can I get an amen for most marriages, right? I look at this, and Brianne, every time I pack the car, she's like, take it all out, I'll do it. Just take it all out. Like, this is unacceptable, I will do it, right? And uh, I'm just amazed. Like, my brain does not work like that. And uh, when we um, try to move couches through doors, you know when the couch is just a little bit too big for the door, okay? And you get up, and you're like... Um, oh, it's got to be angled, you got to put it up like this, and, and uh, um, one of my friends, Scott, says, well, you just put it to a 45-degree angle, and you turn it up, and you turn it clockwise, and you turn left, and I'm like, blah, 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 wah, 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 wah. like, I don't even know what you're saying right now, can you just say one thing at a time, and tell me which way to go, left, right, up, or down, or if you go north six degrees, and you just tilt it, and I'm like, I don't know northeast, southwest, you can tell me it's on the east side of the road, I don't have a clue, is it on the left side, if you're coming from church, that's what I want to know. <laughs> Okay? So spatial things just don't work in my brain. Okay? And uh, I'm, I'm just more and more 
learning to love and appreciate how absolutely unique and different everybody is. And uh, then I find when I'm in my, my sweet spot, when I'm in my zone, when I'm doing the things I'm good at, there is this little piece of my heart, and don't act like it's not in your heart either, where you want to say, look at what I made. Anybody else? Yeah. Some of you are like, no, I can't relate to you at all. You are a terrible, prideful human being who's stealing glory from God. I can't believe you. No, like there is this very powerful part of me that says, look at what I did. Look how smart I am. Look how creative I am. Um, look at what we fixed and made better. And uh, I, I just step back and I'm like, wow, I, I truly do love to take credit and glory from God and to put it on myself. Can somebody give me an amen? Not about me, but about yourselves here, right? Somebody in this room, okay? Nothing. Okay, thank you. There's one humble person in this room. The rest of you are liars. I've found there are two major areas where we love to take glory from God, okay? And the first one is with the things we create. And uh, this is mostly for you creators here. It could be a bathroom, it could be a sermon, a song, a poem, a home, a culture, a design, an organization, art, food, cars, whatever. But your heart wants to step back and say, look at what I made, look how awesome I am. And I want to just talk to you creators for a moment, because some of you are creators and some of you aren't. And I want to just read to you a couple of passages of scripture that actually formed how I think about this. Now, if you're a kid in this room, okay, kids, here's what I want you to listen to. I want you to catch this. God has made you so uniquely, and he's made you very different, probably from your brothers and your sisters. And some of you may wonder, why, do I, why am I so good at building? Why am I so good at creating? Why am I so good at doing different things? And I want you to hear what the Bible has to say about that. And so Moses is uh, charged to build the temple in the book of Exodus, chapter 28. And here's what God says to him. You shall speak to all the skillful. Raise your hand if you're skillful. Who's going to do it? Yeah, yeah, we got a couple over here. We got one over there, right? Whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. If you have skill, who filled you with the spirit to be able to accomplish that skill? Everybody say with me, God. One, two, three. God. That's synonyms. We're good. We're awesome. Exodus 31, verse 1. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And we need to listen to this. I have filled him with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Why? To devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carved wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him a helper, a holyab, and I have given to all able men and women, by the way, ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. You're amazing at working on cars. You can work with wood. You can work with design. You can work in creativity. You can work in art. You work in food. And if you have a unique and profound skill that excels other people, by the way, who gave you that skill? God did. And so we step back, and us creatives, whatever you're creating, right, we step back and we want to say, look at what I made. And I have awesome, great news for you. If God had not given you that skill, Christian or non-Christian, enabled you to do that, created your personality, your mind, your body, your interactions, the way you think, your tendencies, like so much of this is developed and given to you by God, 
you would not be able to do it. Why can I not fit a bunch of stuff into a box in an orderly way? I have no idea, but all I know is before I was born, right, God apparently gave me some crazy mental limitations that didn't allow me to do it. But when my wife was born, let me tell you, that girl can fit as much stuff as you can imagine into the small spaces. And you know what? It's not like she's a better human than me. Well, sometimes she is. Okay, most of the time she is. Okay. I repent again. She's in the other service, so we're fine. Um, Oh, she's in the back. I'm not fine. (laughs) She's waiting. Hello. I was going to use a different illustration in the second service, so you never heard those words. (laughs) Donuts. All right. (laughs) But but truly, uh, God made her and I so differently. And if we step back and we can use these things that God has given us, these skills, even to make a living, I mean, who has provided that for us? And his name is? Jesus. Jesus. Synonym? God, thank you. Um, the second um, area where I find that people are very tempted to take glory and credit from God is with the wealth you make. Somebody give me an amen. No, of course not you. Whether you have a six or seven figure salary, your bank accounts are growing, your home is beautiful, your cars are great, you are debt free, you are successful, you have made and are making more than most all of your friends and peers. I want to read to you a couple passages of scripture. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. He says, Beware. Lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But I'm going to go to the give part because we often focus on the takeaway part. Um, The Lord gave Job more money than Job ever could have possibly imagined. And a beautiful family and homes and cattle and all of this stuff. But by the way, when Job steps back and all of it is taken away, who does he credit as the primary source who allowed him to have every single thing he has? And it is, by the way, God. The author of uh, Proverbs in chapter 30 says this, pleads with God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And then we read this in the American spirit. We're like, no, give me riches, right? Would you rather have riches than just a normal amount? Somebody? Some of you are like, no, but the majority of you in your hearts, you're like, I'd rather have a lot more than a lot less. But here's what he says. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? So that there is something about wealth uh, that is so tempting to the human spirit that this author of Proverbs looks back and he says, "Uh, honestly, I have seen so few people who can handle wealth and give God glory for it and remain humble that I'd almost rather not have it. That's his observation, which, again, is a little countercultural for us. But I've found one simple thing. I want to summarize this. The greatest threat to God getting as much glory in your life is simply this, your success. The greatest threat to God getting glory in your life is your success. Because when we're successful, what do we want? Credit. What does our heart want to do? Look what I have made. Look, I'm debt-free. Look at the home I've built. Look at the bank account I've accrued. Look at the business I own. Look at what I've done. Look at the cars I drive. We may not say it, right? But we live in such a way where we posture ourselves and we promote ourselves rather than having a humble spirit that understands everything I am able to make, do, or accrue is from the permissive hand of God to bless me. So we get to Hezekiah. Last week, we saw Hezekiah 
um, was basically given a death sentence. You're going to die. He prayed. He begged God, heal me. What did God do? God healed him. He said, give me a sign. And so God moves the, the, the sun back 10 steps, 10 degrees, if you will. And this wasn't just an event, we're going to find out here, that the Israelites experienced. This was actually a global event. And that other nations, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds or a thousand miles away, who are studying the stars, actually watched this event happen, and then they responded. And eventually, word got out that the God of Hezekiah did this. And so we get to um, point number one. You can write this down in your notes. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 12, and here's what it says. At that time, this is after he had been healed, after the sun had moved back, it says this. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, the king of Babylon, so this is the prince, if you will, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now, pop quiz, do the Babylonians study meticulously every movement of every star in the sky? The answer is... Yes, and so if there was some event with the sun that had this much effect on, we'll just say the human experience down here, would they have noticed? Absolutely. Yes, if the sun moved one degree backwards, would the Babylonians have absolutely, totally noticed? And the answer is yes. And so we read this, and here's what I want to do for you. The book of 2 Kings and the book of 2 Chronicles each tell the story of Hezekiah. So does Isaiah 38. Uh, and sometimes what happens is, Chronicles gives you a little bit of insight into what's going on that Kings doesn't. So I want to pause for a moment. I'm going to put this up on the screen, and I want to read to you why God is doing what he's doing. You ready? This is interesting. 2 Chronicles 32, 31. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him, who's him? Hezekiah, good job, to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land. So, um, on the one hand, Kings tells us that they are coming because the king had heard that he was sick. Chronicles gives us another aspect of the story, and it says, well, they're coming because there had been this sign that had been done in the land. And so you, if you're skeptical, can say, look, the Bible contradicts itself. Is it possible both can simultaneously be true, and each different author is emphasizing a different part of the story? Village Church answer is yes. Okay, good. And then here's what it says. God left him to himself. In order, why would you do this, God? Why would you pull back from him? In order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So if I were 12 years old and reading this, I would inevitably leave my Bible with the conclusion that God could leave me for periods of my life. I'll, I'll never forget reading so many portions of Scripture as a kid and being so confused, why would God ever leave me? Wait a minute, I thought God never leaves me nor forsakes me. And so if you are a kid in this, or if you're a mom or a dad, and your kid is reading the Bible and says, why did God leave Hezekiah? And if he left Hezekiah, will he leave me? And so this brings up a few questions, three in particular. And the first one is, did God leave Hezekiah? I'm going to give you the simple answer. <clears throat> the answer is no. Um, what God did is he did not restrain himself, pulled himself back from influencing Hezekiah's decision or from protecting him in whatever decision that he could make. What God did is he removed his influence from him, not his presence. 
He removed his influence that typically God would have restrained Hezekiah in this moment. Now, there's a little question that I was just wrestling through personally as I was studying this. And my question just personally went like this. God, are you having to restrain me on a daily basis? Like, how many times a day do you enter into my life and prevent me from giving myself over to the true desires of my heart? It's just one of those questions, and I thought to myself, when I get to heaven, I want to know, God, how much on a daily basis, how many times did you just have to gently, kindly, behind the scenes, restrain me because of the condition of my heart? Question number one, did God leave him physically? No, he didn't. And this is where you need to understand the difference and be able to communicate. No, he, he held his restraining power back and left him to himself so that whatever happened would be revealing the true present condition of Hezekiah's heart. So then the next question that you need to be able to be equipped to communicate to your children when they ask you the difference between, well, what's the difference between Hezekiah and us now? The question they may not know how to ask or you may not know how to ask is this. So what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of God being with us? And so I want to give you that answer because there is a very clear distinction. And so in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would fall or fill people to accomplish tasks or to, um, uh, we'll say, support them in things that they're doing. Um, And it was powerful, and God moved. God moved amongst his people, in his people, and with his people. But there is a very fundamental difference between how God interacted with his people in the Old Testament with how he interacted with his people in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you what that difference is, and it's hard to explain all the details of the spiritual realm and how it works, but here's what we know. What we know is that in the New Testament, one of the promises is that there will come a day when God's Spirit will not just fill us to accomplish a task, um, but will fill us permanently, will dwell inside of us, and that that Holy Spirit will only be given to somebody when they trust in Jesus by faith and not by works. So now, after Jesus, here's what we have. We have the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit of God dwell inside of us by faith. Before Jesus, was that possible? The answer is no. The Holy Spirit filled temporarily. The Holy Spirit helped people fulfill tasks. The Holy Spirit equipped people. But the Holy Spirit did not reside permanently in people in the way that he does now. And so the Old Testament looked forward to a day when God would send his Holy Spirit on his people. And he basically says there's going to be a day when there's a new covenant. The old covenant's going to go away. There'll be a new covenant. And so what we have to understand is when we read the New Testament, um, we uh, understand that we are filled with the Holy Spirit permanently once we trust in Christ, and that is not what is happening in the Old Testament. So David can pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Can the Christian who has the Holy Spirit say that in the way David said it? No, because God gave David the Holy Spirit. He anointed him, if you will, to accomplish a task as king. And sometimes for the kings, when they would disobey God, God would pull his spirit away from them. But will God ever forsake you or pull his Holy Spirit away from you after Jesus? The answer is no. So you can look at your kids, and there's a million different ways to say it, and say this. Look, before Jesus, God didn't give the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit landed on certain people, helped them, equipped them. But after Jesus, the promise, the thing that Jesus gives us is the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit comes in a Christian, we never lose it. It never leaves us. It's permanent. If you trust in Jesus, you can't ever get away from the presence of God because God's presence is in you all the time. 
And this is one of the great blessings of living on this side of Jesus versus that side of Jesus. The New Testament rather than the Old Testament. The Old Testament, they were waiting for the day when the Holy Spirit of God would be poured out and never leave them or forsake them. Now we're on this end of this. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, if your kids trust in Jesus Christ, can kids four or five years old trust in Jesus Phil Church? Absolutely. Kids can understand and be given the Holy Spirit of God. And so if these kids will trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever leave you. And we have to teach them. Read the Old Testament. But understand, God did interact with his people in a different way than he does after Jesus or in the New Covenant or where we live now. The third question is, will God ever leave you or forsake you? And your answer is always no. Unless, if you're not a Christian, you never had the Holy Spirit in the first place. So God isn't in you in the same way that he is a Christian. God isn't with you, supporting you in the way that he is a Christian. But if they're a Christian, God will never leave them or forsake them. It goes on, verse 13, number two in your notes. Here's my big encouragement. Do not, please, so help me God, rob God of his glory, and we'll see why. Hezekiah welcomed them. Who is them? The envoys in Isaiah. It says he welcomed them gladly. He was pumped. He's like, yes, these foreigners. I mean, these are um, royals from a um, new and up-and-coming empire, the Babylonian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is dying away. This Babylonian Empire, they're trying to make um, relationships with other nations with the secret agenda to swallow them up, destroy them, and enslave them, FYI. And so here's what happens. And it says, Hezekiah showed them all his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory. I mean, could you imagine Barack Obama taking the uh, world leaders of communist countries and ISIS and taking them and showing them all of our secret weapons? Here's our nuclear arsenal. Here's this. Here's that. Here's how many uh, people we have. I mean, you would look at him and say, you, you can't publish that information. That puts us at risk. And yet here's Hezekiah. He shows them all of his armory, all that was found in his storehouses, There was nothing in the house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So was this a small, short trip? No, I mean, this was probably multiple days of him walking around and saying, look at this, and look at this, and look at this, and look at this, and look at this. And on one hand, you might read this and gloss over and say, yeah, what's the big deal? But if you really start to process this and think about this, this is actually an enormous deal. He is now putting the entire nation at risk and exposing the front lines of their defenses to foreign countries who do ultimately have the motive to destroy Israel. But here's the question. Why did this upset God so much? And we've got to go to Chronicles to understand. Here's what it says. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. And he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses. Also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance. And then here's what's important. For God had given him very great possessions. What does the author want you to know about the origin of every ounce of wealth that he has? Who's it from? God. Next verse. Go back a couple of verses, and here's what it says. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. For his heart was, say with me, proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. Pride is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It's from Romans 12, too. It's thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. 
if I could just tell you one thing here, right? So he has these envoys that come. And basically what he says is, look what I've created and look what I've accumulated. Look how awesome I am. I am an amazing creator. I create cities. I create wealth. I create culture. I create jobs. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And as he takes credit, he thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think. And the God looks at him and says, you're proud. You're owning what is mine, which is credit and glory. So the New Testament comes along twice, says this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let me just ask you a simple question. Do you want to live life, handle your finances, raise your kids, go to work, do all your crafts and creativity with the opposition of God against you? I can't think of anybody who's going to say, yes, I would like the opposition of God, right? Hear me. When you take credit in your heart, in your head, or with your mouth, you position yourself to be under the opposition of God. And by the way, when James writes this, is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? Christians, follower of Christ. Here's what I want you to understand. Do not take glory or credit for anything in your life. Do not let your heart become proud because God has given you everything you have, period. There is nothing you can do or will do or might do or have or did have that God did not enable or directly give to you. There is no job promotion you received. There is no inheritance that you received. There is nothing that you have that God did not orchestrate down to the penny. There is no stock that went up that God did not permit you to put it in there in the first place to get more wealth. There is no 401k that shot through the roof where God did not provide for you the wisdom, the knowledge, or the ability to get what you have. And the moment you forget this, the message of the New Testament to you, and we're going to watch what happened to Hezekiah, is that God stands in opposition to you. And God will, though your wealth might increase, will not give you the daily grace you need. He will stand in opposition to you. And although on a human level you may not have success, who cares if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul in the process? And so if I could look at you and take the example of Hezekiah, it would just be simply this. Humble yourselves and start giving God glory and credit at every single corner you possibly can. I mean, this, this opportunity was so perfect. I mean, catch this. Foreigners come. They have seen something they cannot explain in the stars that they study and worship. Uh, he has been healed, given 15 more years, and they come to him from hundreds and hundreds of miles away and say, tell us what happened. And he says, look what my God did. Is that what he said? He says, look at what my hands have built. You were given beautiful opportunities at every corner of your life. God is navigating, intervening, and moving every moment of your life. And there are these these just really beautiful moments that kind of just stick out. There are these moments of like God's stories and God interventions. And God did not publicly move in your life so that he could just like, get no credit whatsoever. And you can say, look how great I am. Every time God does something, even something a little bit out of the ordinary, my hunch is this. God wants credit and he wants you to give it to him. And the moment you take it, you're stealing from God what is rightfully his. And he starts to begin the process of opposition against you. Now, is it permanent? doesn't need to be. But as long as you steal God's glory, as long as you take from him what's his, he will stand in opposition to you. I don't want that at all, and neither do you. And so God's simple remedy is, okay, then humble yourselves and give me credit. It's just that easy, right? Anybody? 
Verse 14, then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and he said to him, what do these men say and where did they, uh, where did they come to you? And from where did they come to you? I mean, you can't miss a Babylonian envoy, FYI. So this is obviously clear. There's people visiting. And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country from Babylon. Like, I mean, that's how I imagine him saying it. You can put your own tone in there. He said, Isaiah, what have they seen in your house? Because Isaiah's smart. He gets why foreigners come and send envoys. Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. And there is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. I mean, do you hear his pride? And and the author wants you to know, he's prideful. He's not like just telling the story. There's a a disgusting grain of pride going on here. Pop quiz. Is Isaiah going to be opposed by God or supported by God? You say opposed, right? That's Verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all this that you are so proud of, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, subtle reminder, FYI, you're like building your wealth off the inheritance of your forefathers. This shall be carried away to Babylon. These people that you think are so nice and innocuous and easy, and they're just coming here to build friendships and tell me how awesome I am and just give me praise and adoration. Everything you have is going to be given to Babylon. And some of your own sons, who shall be born to you, they're not even alive yet. You're going to have kids, by the way, and when you do they're going to go over to Babylon. And they shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, before you get caught up in what God does, you're like, I don't like that. That's not fair, right? Here's what the author wants you to know. What's the biggest problem right now? Hezekiah's pride. At this point, what would you do? You would hear this rebuke and say, I'm so sorry. Right, Village Church? Right? Okay, that's not what he does. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken to me is good. And then, I love this, the author tells you his thought. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Don't you just want to reach through the pages of Scripture and strangle him at this point? I have this experience often when I read the Bible. Like, I imagine that they're there, and I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, really, is that in your heart? Like, that doesn't matter. I'll just pass on debt to the next generation. I'll just pass on the wrath of God to the next generation. As long as it's not me, I'm fine. I'm going to live happy, healthy, and wealthy until, like... That is what's going on in his heart. And then what's frustrating is that in the book of Kings, the story ends. It just ends. The next verse is, um, in verse 20, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not all written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And so basically the author of the Kings leaves you in this place where Hezekiah's last deed is, yeah, who cares? So Chronicles, when they write the story, FYI, just a little Bible 101 for you, okay? Every author writes a book with a different goal. They choose and they pick and choose different stories to communicate a different storyline, right? So uh, my wife, if she were telling the story of my life, might tell um, the story from her perspective, and you might tell the story from your perspective, and my friends might tell the story from their perspective. Same story, just different angles and different goals and agendas. And so the book of Second Chronicles has a different agenda in telling the story, and so I want to leave you on a little bit of a high note here. And here's how Second Chronicles ends it. It says this, But Hezekiah humbled himself. Aren't you so relieved? You're like, oh, thank God. Like, really, Hezekiah? And then author of 2 Kings, why did you just leave us hanging there? Like, don't you feel like 2 Like, if this was your story, don't you want somebody to add that verse to it, right? But the author of 2 Kings is like, nah, we keep going. Uh, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. I've got one so what, we're going to close. It's very simple. Give God credit 
for everything you do, everything you are, and everything you have. And that's all I have to say. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for every amazing gift that you give us. And Lord, we just confess, collectively, Christian or non-Christian in this room, we love credit. We love glory. We love accolades. We love applause. There's a little part of us in Hezekiah or maybe a big part that just um, really wants to show off everything we've done and created and accumulated. So God, would you humble us? Because truly, we have no desire to be opposed by you, but to be supported and to be given the grace that we need daily to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so God, my prayer is that Village Church, every human here, would start hunting down ways to give you credit for the big things and the small things. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.